condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Tim Anderson. Now, in the studio, first of all, today, we have SOT editors Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley. So, Tim Anderson is a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney, Australia. He researches and writes on development rights and self-determination in Latin America, the Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. He's published many dozens of chapters and articles in a range of academic books and journals, and his latest book is The Dirty War on Syria, Washington, Regime Change, and Resistance, published by Global Research. And that just came out um, last year, I believe, or early this year. No, this year. Sorry. 2016. So, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Harrison. My pleasure. Well, to start out with, first I, I'll just say a little bit more about what I know about you. I first heard about you from Global Research, so you've published several articles on Global Research, and they've published your new book here. And then I also found you on Facebook through some mutual friends and found out that you're the guy that creates all those great images of anti-propaganda about what's really going on in Syria. So, or when did you first write for Global Research? What drew you to start writing about the war in Syria? Well, um, you know, there's, there's a huge disinformation campaign about Syria, and that extends to the exclusion of voices, of dissident voices, either in the media but also in academia. And I'm basically a writer. So I was writing things and looking for source, you know, places to publish them. And uh, Global Research is one of the few in the English-speaking world that had a, a quite a consistent, strong line on, on what the war was all about in Syria. So that, that led me to global research. And as for the infographics you mentioned, um, I started doing those because, um, again, as a writer, it's rather frustrating. You can spend a lot of time preparing a, a research article and maybe, you know, a few hundred people share it or something on social media. But if you do a cartoon or a graphic, then a few thousand people will share it. So (laughs) I started to think about including some information in a, not necessarily a cartoon, but a graphic um, that attracted people's attention with some photographs and so on. So it's just another level of communication. You know, people's attention spans are so short these days. Mm -hmm. I still value reading and writing, but um, I mix them up, basically. Well, I think they're great. I love them. And any of our listeners who want to check them out, they're regularly posted on Global Research. You can also check out... Tim's Facebook page. Now, Tim, you just recently got back from Syria, right? You made a trip there. Can you tell us a bit about why you were there? Yeah, I went there in the middle of April for uh, almost two weeks. It was my third trip to Syria, but this one was uh, during all during the, the crisis. But this one was really to present my book in Syria. I wanted to present it uh, and take some hard copies there to Syria and... Um, and also to develop my my research uh, 
my lines of research, my relationship with Syrian organisations in research and also in development. So it was really about the book and, and building those sorts of relationships. And there was a lot of interest in the book. There's now I now have a contract for the Arabic version of the book, which should be out next month. Great. Um, so that was that was mainly what the trip was about. And the elections took place, right? The parliamentary elections while you were there? Yeah, by coincidence, I just ended up going at the same time that the parliamentary elections were going on. And, and that was interesting to observe that. And of course, there was a, a fair amount of foreign media and local media that was, um, uh, that was talking to international people about how they saw the elections. Well, that must have been interesting because I know in the, in the West, especially in North America, the, like you said, there's a huge disinformation campaign in the media and from governments about what's really going on in Syria or what's not going on in Syria. And one of the things that we don't really see a lot about is the even the idea of elections in Syria. We don't hear about them a lot. They're, they don't get any very much news coverage at all. All that we have in the West is the idea that that uh, Assad is a brutal dictator who purposely, purpose, purposefully targets his own civilians and, and murders children. So... I think that, um, well, can you tell us a bit about the elections? Um, what do they show about what's the, what the real state of Syrian democracy is? Mm. Yes, well, of course, the, the Western powers that are trying to overthrow the Syrian government don't have any interest in Syrian democracy. That's why they want to try and disqualify it or ignore it completely. You could have said the same about the Western coverage of Cuba in the last couple of decades, too, the same sorts of things. They just, people... Uh, aren't really allowed to talk about these sorts of things. Um, the, the, the parliamentary elections in Syria last month were, um, in, in the context of a presidential system, interestingly, the system is not too different from that of the US. That is to say, it's a presidential system with the Congress, which uh, are the lawmakers, basically. But in the same sort of way, there's less enthusiasm for the parliamentary elections than the presidential. So the participation rate is, is lower. Mm-hmm. But the participation rate in both of them is much higher than in the US. So, for example, when the president, Bashar al-Assad, was re-elected two years ago, uh, the participation rate was 73%. And I don't think in living memory there's been a participation rate that high in the US. Mm-hmm. So similarly, at a lower scale with the Congress elections, they were there's been two parliamentary or Congress elections uh, during the conflict, 2012 and last month. And in 2012, the participation rate was down to 51%. Remember, the armed groups there are threatening death and reprisal against anyone who participates in these sorts of elections. So they, they in a sense, the armed groups, the al-Qaeda groups, have a quite a parallel sort of approach to the elections to the US. You know, they have no interest in elections or, or any sort of democracy. They want a religious state. And in a sense, the, the US policy is mirroring the same sort of thing. There's, there's no interest in it. They'll just say they don't, they don't exist, more or less. So the participation rate was, was a bit higher this time. Um, and the range of candidates was high. A lot of people were commenting on the fact that, I mean, there was banners all through Damascus and countryside Syria, a huge amount of election, um, what do you say, um, propaganda there for can- all sorts of candidates, not just parties but individuals as well. People noticed there was more young people, more women, for example, um, that there was a wider variety of candidates, and the participation rate was up around 57% this time, so it had, Again, much higher than congressional congressional elections in in the US. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of interest, but I don't think you could say that the enthusiasm was quite as strong as for the the presidential elections two years ago. And uh, we understand that um, Assad had actually won those elections with a percentage of eighty eight point seven percent of those voting, uh, mm-hmm. which 
you know, if most people in the U.S. had knowledge of the whole idea that, uh, that, that this is a guy who supposedly, you know, subjugates his people and kills his people. I mean, how do you win an election uh, if by, by such a large percentage if you're so popular? It's impossible. Yeah, that's true. I mean, of course, there's two things going on here. The, the presidential elections prior to the one two years ago were effectively plebiscites, right, because there was a privileged status of the Ba'ath Party, and once the Ba'ath Party had decided its candidate, I suppose, once the Republican parties decided its candidate or something, that was it. You didn't have any other choices. Um, but so the there was a huge institutional advantage to the incumbent president in 2014 but at the same time there was a communist and a businessman candidates that got through the the nomination process um they had to have by the way about 30 members of parliament supporting them so it wasn't um it was they needed some substantial support um it wasn't that um there was no support for opposition candidates but they had a a common platform there um, that is to say, against the, the, the foreign-funded terrorist groups and basically the differences were over economic policy. So that that enthusiasm was genuinely there, but, you know, it's fair to say also that there is a fair degree of a personality cult around uh, President Bashar, but he's also genuinely popular. There's all those things altogether, really. Um, he still represents the face of reform of the system uh, in Syria. It, it's fair to say that the system, um, the system and the Ba'athist Ba'ath Party role in that is significantly less popular than President Bashar, for example, mm -hmm. who heads a coalition government. There's been ministers in his government from other parties apart from the Ba'ath Party for at least since 2012, for example. But his popularity is extremely high still. Uh, it's got stronger during the crisis. If you look at the, the, the history of polls and estimates uh, going back for a decade, you can see that there was some uncertainty amongst Syrians about him, mainly because they thought he wasn't strong enough. Uh, contrary to the the Western attempt to try and make him the new Hitler, really he he is what he appears—a mild man, a mild mannered uh, dental surgeon, you know—and uh, with a lot of agonising about the cultural impact, the impact on children of this war, and so on. But um, I think the the war has proven him more de decisive than many thought. And it's, there's some pretty clear evidence that his popularity has strengthened uh, during the crisis. Yeah, you write back in uh, in 2011, the Syrian people, they nicknamed him Mr. Softheart because they didn't think that he was being as uh, as strong-willed as he should have been to crush the this uprising that occurred um, that the West had labeled as, uh, you know, democratic uh, protests, but in reality was uh, the an armed uprising from major uh, militant groups. And could mm. you talk a little bit about those, uh, the militant groups and the, the, their relation to the Syrian state? Yes, well, it's a good question. It goes to another issue that people are probably confused by because the Western governments and the Western media talk about the opposition as effectively the spokespeople for the armed groups. And that means effectively the Al-Qaeda groups because they dominate all of the, all of the armed groups. Uh, if you go back, say, 10 years, there were 11 years, there was a, uh, a document called the Damascus Declaration by all of the opposition groups, which included the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the major Salafist or, uh, you know, jihadi group in Syria, but also the others. And that document specifically rejected armed attacks on the state or the army specifically rejected it. So there is a much broader Syrian opposition, but what happened in 2011 was there, there also were 
democratic protests, but also pro-government protests in 2011. But when the armed insurrection led by the Al-Qaeda groups and the Muslim Brotherhood took place in, in March, began in two, March 2011 in Dara and spread up into Homs, uh, a lot of those opposition people, the overwhelming majority of them, uh, reverted back to supporting at least the state, if not the government, some the government and most of them the state. So since that time, it's only really the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafist groups, the ones that align themselves with the Al-Qaeda groups that have been in this armed uprising. So they don't, they've they never represented the, the spectrum of a political opposition, a civil opposition in Syria. But uh, because of the way the Western media talks about it, it seems that they do. Well, it's just, I, I find it infuriating that pretty much everything that you hear about Syria is is just the, completely wrong. It's the total opposite of what's going on. Because, mm-hmm. every first of all, everything that they say about Assad is a total lie. And mm-hmm. then everything they say about the so-called opposition or moderate rebels is a total lie. It's like you say, mm-hmm. any any kind of real opposition that existed within the first few months of of the, the so-called protests or uprising in 2011, they, they uh, very vehemently... Um, opposed the the violent factions, the violent militant factions and the jihadi groups and showed support for the state and the army and Assad. Mm -hmm. And so for that whole, for this whole time, for going on five years, Mm -hmm. there has, there has been no democratic protest movement. It's been, it's been groups of armed jihadi militants. And these are the guys that the U S continues to call moderate rebels and continues to support. And these are the guys currently in Aleppo who are so-called? They're 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 quote intermingled with uh, with Al uh, Nusra Front, and that, that oh, and that just got to me too. I watched a clip of John Kirby at the State Department giving a talk, uh, like a press conference. I think it might have been yesterday or the day before, and they were talking about the current situation in Aleppo, and he was talking about how unfortunate it was that the that their guys were intermingled with al-Nusra and that they've, they've told them, they've explained to them the situation about the dangers of being intermingled with al-Nusra, but they, they just, they haven't left, um, they haven't unmingled themselves with al-Nusra front. And it's just, it's just maddening. Well, that was always the, it's a double game, as you pointed out, you know, the, the, it's, the words mean the reverse of what they mm-hmm. what they are. Al Nusra was specifically created as a foreign support front for the Syrian Salafists in 2011. The name means um, the fronting support, and the long name is the fronting support of the you know the Islamic people of Syria and the, the, the Levant. So um, there's the problem. They've always been intermingled there, and that was the idea. If you go back to the U.S. intelligence report, which uh, was leaked out about two years ago, but it was from 2012. It said quite specifically, so they don't, they're not fooling themselves in the internal documents, that the creation of an, of a, uh, a, cal- a caliphate in eastern Syria is exactly what the US and its allies wanted, mm-hmm. um, so as to undermine the, the Syrian regime. So the idea of, a, of an Islamic state was there well before ISIS came to, across the border from Iraq into Syria. And in that same document, the the DIA document from 2012, they said that the the three main groups there were the the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Al Nusra, and Al Qaeda in Iraq, which was ISIS. So they knew from that, the beginning. From, from the, the beginning, beginning. It, which means that it wasn't it wasn't co-opted, you know, or didn't um, 
wasn't taken over by Islamists. That is how it began, basically. And, and the U.S. knows it. The U.S. has always known that's been the case. And what's so interesting is you have, you know, all of these countries, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, you know, they, they have kind of uh, instilled their uh, Wahhabist um, thinking uh, on uh, ISIL and ISIS. And then you have uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, that, that's been there for decades, and they, and they have U.S. direct support. Uh, it seems like every, every one of these countries that wants a piece of Syria also has its own proxy um, uh, force or face. Uh, yes. that, that, that's, that's been introduced into the situation. That's right, and there's been a bit of competition between them from time to time. At one stage, Qatar was uh, the major group that supported the Muslim Brotherhood. The Saudis didn't really trust them because, remember, with these sorts of groups, if they get too big, they can become Frankenstein's monsters. So that's why there remains quite a large number of groups there. There's only really four big groups these days, but a large number of smaller groups because... Um, the sponsors, the main sponsors, as you pointed out, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, they don't really want these groups to get together because they, there could be some serious um, blowback and, uh, and, and semi-independent sort of actions. There's already, there's already a coup attempt in the United Arab Emirates, for example. So a lot of those Gulf monarchies which have had their own militias, and as you said, uh, they've got their own little, like Kuwait, for example, had their own little militia. You know, they all had their, their pet militia, but um, there is some paranoia, significant paranoia amongst the Gulf states, the Gulf monarchies, that this may blow back and affect them too. Well, just t looking back over the decades, like you brought up, Ilan, uh, it said the Muslim Brotherhood have been involved in, in Syria and, you know, trying to create uprisings and and impose uh, their, their version of the Wahhabi law, Sharia law. So I was just wondering, Tim, if you could talk about how they have shaped the Syrian government uh, to become a little bit more authoritarian and that has uh, kind of led to the rise of these opposition groups. If you can just talk about the history of the Syrian government with these, uh, with these Wahhabi groups. Okay. Yes, um, there's sort of two factors involved with the shaping of the Syrian state and some of the some of the concerns, genuine concerns expressed by Syrian opposition groups in the past, um, not just the, the Muslim Brotherhood, but one was the wars with Israel, of course. You know, the, the, the state of emergency which lasted into the current crisis was really came out of the, the last major war with Israel in 1973, so 40, what is it, 43 years ago now. Um, um, it's, that state of emergency was because there, there had always been apprehensions that the the, the state of Israel was a constant threat to Syria. And at the same time, the internal threat, which, as you pointed out, had been supported by the US and the Saudis in the past, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, was had carried out in particular a, a very nasty, bloody sectarian insurrection in, this, in the city of Hama, but also in Aleppo back in the early 80s. Um, and it was crushed definitively by Hafez al-Assad, the, the father of the current president, and that, that sort of, the reflection on that, I mean, Syrians are aware of that history, you know, 30 years earlier. And when they saw this insurrection, they immediately identified this was another Muslim Brotherhood operation, but this time much more internationalized and with stronger support. So those two processes, the, the existence of this sectarian state involved in expansion, Israel, and threatening and occupying Syrian land as well as 
Palestinian land. I am the the internal uh, factor of the Muslim Brotherhood trying to trying to undermine or be a competitor with um, Arab nationalism. Basically, remember Arab nationalism became very powerful in the fifties, very popular when uh, President Nasser in Egypt uh, defeated the British and the French over the Suez Canal, and that led to a huge fervor of Arab nationalism in the across the region. And at that time, the British handed over to President Eisenhower in the U.S. the relationship with the the King of Saudi Arabia, the only country named after a family. Um, But the reason for that was to try and have an ally that would work on the divisions within the Arab world and weaken any potential NASA's in in the Arab world. And they've done that, you have to say, very effectively. I mean, Eisenhower back in the 50s said, we want to build up the, the Saudi king as a rival figure to NASA, uh, a political leader, maybe even a religious leader. So the idea of Wahhabism, which which they, the, the British and the US knew everything about there, they were horrified by the brutality of Wahhabist Saudi Arabians chopping off hands and the way they treat women and all that sort of thing. But they were very really appreciative, as as Churchill said, of the loyalty, the undying loyalty, the unfailing loyalty, I think Churchill said, um, of the Saudis towards the Western powers. So that, um, you know, there's those two factors, the two very strong sectarian factors that the big powers have used in the Middle East. One is Israel and the other Saudi Arabia, which not coincidentally are now forging a much closer partnership. Yeah, I'd just like to reiterate to the listeners out there that, you know, this whole uh, relationship and the history of Syria in the region and to the, the many countries that are... Uh, that have, seem to have their knives at his throat. It's totally complex, but the book, uh, your book, The Syrian Dirty War, is just an excellent read, and it makes uh, it's it's just it's extremely entertaining and well documented. And I definitely encourage everyone to to get a copy and to to read through it because it just blow by blow details everything that's been happening to Syria leading up to this current conflict. Yeah, I I completely agree, Corey. I mean, uh, the the clarity of the language, Tim, um, it's utterly readable and digestible and uh, adds a lot of facts uh, to the story that I think um, just gets lost, even in the alternative news sphere. Uh, There was one passage from your book, uh, which which I was reading, quite interesting, uh, what you write is, uh, despite their anti-Syrian bias, some Western sources exposed other false flag massacres. Yeah, I, wish, I should just add in, you know, in a very minimal way. But, um, for example, the August 2012 massacre of 245 people in Daria, initially badged as a massacre by Assad's army, was exposed by Robert Fisk as a slaughter by the FSA of kidnapped civilian and off-duty soldier hostages after a failed prisoner swap. Similarly, the December 10, 2012 massacre of over 100 villagers in Akrab was at first blamed on the Syrian government. However, British journalist Alex Thompson later reported the FSA had held 500 Alawi villagers for nine days, murdering many of them as the army closed in and the gang fled. The August 2013 chemical weapons incident in East Ghouta was widely blamed on the Assad government. Yet all independent evidence exposed this as yet another false flag. And what I didn't know until reading that was that that was actually the Free Syrian Army 
and uh, you know the so-called moderates, and and not, uh, in fact, you know ISIS or or uh, Al Nusra Front or any of the other groups. That's uh, right. It was a combination of those three groups that are really in fighting in Aleppo today. Well, ISIS is in Aleppo as well, but that coalition which Turkey put together between Jabhat al Nusra, which is the banned Al Qaeda group, and Jaish al Islam, the Army of Islam, and Ara Asham. So those three groups have been consolidated into a coalition in the north of Syria, but they were the ones also in northeast countryside Damascus that um, that manufactured that chemical weapons incident back uh, a few years ago. And then, well, I read a recent interview with Seymour Hirsch, and he said that uh, he's heard from several of his sources that the the chemical weapons attack, the when the <clears throat> when Russia and the U.S. kind of created the deal to for Russia to well for Syria to destroy its chemi- chemical weapons store apparently the US had sent um, sent a ship over there with some forensic testing capabilities so they got rid of all the chemical weapons and they actually tested the 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 chemical weapons that were used and found that they they there were no match at all for the the weapons that were used in the I believe it was the East Ghouta attack and but mm-hmm. they've been they've been keeping that silent ever since they've been continuing to say to use the talking point that the the Assad regime used chemical weapons in East Ghouta when they their own forensic experts tested the, the the gases the weapons and found that they did not match at all the Syrian yeah, well, chemical the, weapons stores. The, the, the evidence is overwhelming on that, but as you say, the um, including very independent evidence on Sima Hirsch's one, but also those MIT scientists that looked at the the telemetry evidence of the rockets and so on and found it was impossible for the Syrian army to have fired them. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff was comprehensive, but as you say, the, the Western media keeps repeating the same story, regardless of the evidence, basically. So now it looks like, okay, so in Syria, um, obviously we've had the Russian intervention, and now the U.S. is talking about, you know, putting boots on the ground, but they're not putting boots on the ground. They can't get their story straight, but they are sending troops in. So I was just wondering uh, what you think uh, the state of, uh, of affairs are right now and what it kind of looks like in the, in the near-term future. It sounds like Syria, uh, the Syrian army is uh, beginning a major offensive in Aleppo. And just uh, kind of what uh, you see for the, the future of Syria at this point. Yes, well, it's true that the the Syrian army and, and the Syrian alliance, you know, which includes now Russian air power, Iranian support, uh, a, a large number of militia from across the region, in particular Hezbollah from Lebanon, um, well, that alliance is prevailing generally, and the retaking of Palmyra in March was a significant sign of that. The problem is there are still very powerful supporters of the the armed groups in Syria, Turkey and Saudi Arabia in particular, and the U.S., of course. I mean, the, 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 the fact that there's political will in the U.S. to keep pushing for regime change, which, you know, an illegal war of aggression, effectively, um, is what aggravates this crisis. And so, you know, in the, in, the, in the short to medium term, effectively, the US and its allies are losing in the effort to either balkanise or, or overthrow the government of Syria, basically. But they're causing enormous damage. And there are still great dangers because none of those states, neither the US nor Turkey nor Saudi Arabia, like the idea that they are losing. And at the same time as they are losing, they are catalyzing a type of enhanced 
axis of resistance, which is used to refer to Iran, Syria and Hezbollah, but now includes Iraq. And of course, that has important implications for US policy in the entire region, doesn't it? All of that death and destruction to try and uh, subjugate Iraq and make it a, a close ally of the US is starting to vanish. I mean, a recent survey done showed that amongst Iraqi youth that it was something like 93% saw the US as the enemy. So effectively, the, the alienation of the Iraqi government and Iraqi youth from, from the US is extremely powerful. The US has, uh, the, sorry, the Russia has its anti-ISIS intelligence unit in Baghdad now. So although there's still a way to go in terms of Iraq disentangling itself from its it's like the last 13 years of, of history with the US, that's definitely in play. And that means this this axis across Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah, which is feared by Israel because they believe that correctly that that axis is providing weapons to the Palestinian resistance, that whole thing is reshaping the region. But as I said, unfortunately, in the short term, uh, it's a very dangerous situation, and the the fact that the U.S. has apparently sent uh, a small number, 150 or so soldiers into northern parts of Syria where they're trying to work with the separatist Kurdish forces to try and dismember Syria a little bit there, um, that's dangerous too because if there's some um, overt links between ISIS and uh, the other armed groups there and U.S. soldiers start getting involved or killed, um, that's a terrible provocation which could lead to escalation. So there are a lot of real dangers of escalation and also the, 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 the simple awful fact of the constant terrorism, the constant, um, even when an enemy loses a war, they can keep killing people and that's the, the they're some of the real dangers in this, in this conflict. Uh, Tim, the, there were recent reports that Turkey may be starting a new incursion uh, into Syria, and considering that, at least by appearances, um, Obama didn't meet with Erdogan when he visited in Washington a few weeks ago. Uh, they they sort of distanced themselves from the shoot down of the um, of the Russian plane uh, by mm-hmm. Turkey's air forces. Uh, there seemed to have been a, a cooling off, uh, mm-hmm. and and yet it would appear that. Um, that Turkey's kind of biting at the bit or chomping at the bit and, and prepared to uh, jump into the fray again. Uh, how do you see that playing out, at, if at all? Yeah, um, it's true that the U.S. or the Obama administration, let's say, has been trying to distance itself from um, the Saudis and the and uh, the government of Erdogan um, for at least uh, two years. Um, and that has to account to a fair degree for the the admissions made by Pre- Vice President Biden and the head of the army, General Martin Dempsey, back in 2014, that their allies were indeed financing ISIS. Now, that seemed an extraordinary admission at the time, and maybe some people have forgotten about it, but it to me it was really a strategic move to try and blame their allies, particularly the Saudis uh, and also Turkey, and uh, I think Biden maybe apologise to Erdogan after that, but they've made that sort of admission as a, as a means to try and, in pursuit of this traditional US policy of plausible deniability, you know, that you'll you'll blame someone else and say that the Saudis are off on their own tangent. Of course, sure. the Saudis can't, 
can't provide millions of dollars of weapons to terrorist groups without the US specifically approving it. We know that there's a there's an office in Washington that specifically approves or or doesn't approve the re-export of US weapons, and we know that ISIS is overwhelmingly run by by US weapons these days. So, so there's that tension in the relationship. Um, in terms of Turkey, there's a couple of things there. One is that they have already their own proxy armies, the Turkmen armies with Turkish flag or a variation of a Turkish flag in, in with that coalition of the, the army of conquest, Jaysh al-Fatah, uh, in, in, which is fighting the Syrian army at the moment around Aleppo. But also there's been a rumour that the, the, the Turkish, and they've had regular Turkish army people embedded with those militia also, but there's also a, a report recently that there was a, a Turkish plan to go in and excise a type of buffer area, boundary area, probably giving it some sort of humanitarian name or something like that, but really effectively to to keep providing the safe haven to the groups that they sponsor in, in northern Syria there. Turkey has always relied on the idea that they could claim the support of, of NATO countries, and to a, to a fair degree they've got it, um, if there was any provocation on the border, whether from Syria or from Russia. Um, <coughs> I think the U- Europeans are probably more wary of that now that Russia's involved, but that's that's always a danger that Erdogan thinks that he, he has perhaps the force of, uh, of NATO behind him if there's some direct uh, confrontation on the border. Tim, I want to ask you about a group, um, the White Helmets, now, because there's, we've we've been talking about a lot of the media disinformation and these rebel groups, but they're also um, kind of like who are the white helmets? Are they 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 call themselves like some kind of humanitarian group? Um, I saw them in the news recently. I was just wondering if you can give some background and what they sure. do. They were set up about uh, two and a half years ago, I think. Um, mainly a Wall Street construction. So there are foundations like Soros's Open. Society Foundation that have funded a range of groups, really, the Syria campaign, um, some subsets of Avaz and another group that was um, linked to Avaz, for example. So um, Soros has been involved in some of this, but we found recently that the apparently USAID has also been funding the White Helmets. Um, the, the White House spokesperson a few days ago said that USAID had given them $23 million. Mm-hmm. They're headed by a British ex-soldier, um, and they've effectively created a type of alliance between um, those uh, foreign media campaigns, which are largely run by Wall Street. You know, the, the Saudis uh, contracted out their, their Twitter account to, um, to one of these USPR companies, and the, the so-called Syrian opposition, the one that's based in Saudi Arabia, has been doing the same sort of thing. The, the White Helmet PR campaign that's being run directly from Wall Street um, but on the ground, effectively, um, it, what's emerged in the last year is that there's a lot of video now, partly through their own making, uh, of them with Jabhat al-Nusra in, in particular, um, you know, with guns, uh, celebrating Jabhat al-Nusra victories, um, picking up bodies after executions. Um, and there's a very good little documentary by an Australian called Steve Ezzedine about um the White Helmets and Vanessa Bealey in, in the, the Americas has been writing about this for, for almost a year now too. So effectively they're a front group. They embed themselves with Jabhat al-Nusra. They set up um, 
clinics or and uh, emergency medical help, but effectively it's those al-Qaeda groups themselves putting on the jackets and putting on the helmets mm -hmm. and then filming themselves and claiming that they're under attack by the Syrians or the Russians, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's a quite a clever sort of propaganda stunt by the backers, which uh, I had only found out recently that the US government through USAID was directly funding them as well as the the foundations like the Open Society Foundation. They're, they're basically a Western creation and they've been very important in keeping this disinformation campaign going. You know, the current one that, for example, in Aleppo, all that the Syrians and Russians are doing is deliberately destroying hospitals. They're deliberately attacking civilians, deliberately destroying hospitals. I mean, this has been going on for five years, this sort of disinformation, but in context of Aleppo, you've got the White Helmets play the most important role in that campaign now. Um, uh, but also it should be said that uh, the Doctors Without Borders, the, the French-based group with links to French intelligence, has been funding a lot of clinics for those same groups without sending their volunteers. Usually MSF, Doctors Without Borders, send in international volunteers. They haven't been doing that because the situation is so dangerous. But what it's meant is they've ended up effectively funding um, Jabhat al-Nusra field hospitals throughout Syria. And then when they get attacked, then there's another another line to the the disinformation campaign that look look at here these the Syrian forces are deliberately bombing hospitals. Well they're deliberately bombing the terrorist groups. And that's the the populations in Damascus and Aleppo, which the situation by the way is quite different now because the ceasefire has sort of worked in Damascus, whereas there's a big offensive and counteroffensive in Aleppo at the moment. But the attacks specifically on the groups that are mortaring civilians, civilians are demanding that the army intervenes. And the Western media is saying, oh, the army is attacking the civilians, you know. So it's once again diametrically opposed what's going on. But these fake NGOs have been important in the disinformation campaigns. Mm -hmm. That's that's actually one of, the, one of the things that I appreciate about your book so much is that, well, first of all, it's just so clearly written and you really just get get into the propaganda and and just expose it for exactly what it is. And I like one of the things that you, you repeat several times in your book, and that's about just the nature of the sources for, for whenever we hear about um, any kind of atrocities or things like that, to, to look at the source, because many of the images that we see uh, in the news, when you actually look into them, oftentimes, or most of the time, it turns out that they're either recycled images, they're not from where they say they're from, or they're just completely unsubstantiated. So it's just an image by itself, and that gets attached to uh, a narrative, but without any real investigation and without any real proof backing it up. <clears throat> so I remember I, um, a few months ago I found a new YouTube channel, and it was by this this um, Syrian exile, a young guy. So he hadn't... He, he, I think he spent the first few years of his life in Syria, and then his father was arrested... And they left the country after that, and so he came back and he started. He said he started this little media group, and so he was going around Aleppo and talking to what he said were just ordinary citizens of Aleppo, and they were all saying in this one video, "Oh, there's no, there's no Al Qaeda, or or there's no Al Nusra in uh, Aleppo. There's only the Free Syrian Army. We're the Free Syrian Army." Now the thing about this video, because it was it was supposed to be really moving and and to show that there's only only these moderate groups in Aleppo. But the thing was, if, if you just looked a bit carefully at the video, all these guys were being interviewed like separately on like a bit, like empty streets and these, and they're all military aged men. 
and yeah. <laughs> and with, be- with beards and no mustaches yeah. in a lot of cases. Yeah. So, so you've got to ask yourself, well, who's saying this? Where's it coming from? Because oftentimes, like you said, Tim, it's the it's the it's actually Al Nusra who's dressing up as civilians and saying yeah. and saying this is what's going on. Well, it's it's completely backwards. It's not it's not what it, that is not what's happening on the ground. Yeah. Well, actually, since you mentioned, you know, the Al-Qaeda dressing, dressing themselves up as civilians, that, of course, has been going on from the beginning. And there were Western journalists reporting it in 2011, too. Um, uh, there was one, um, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was reporting it um, from the middle of 2011. Also, that very well-known nun, the mother superior of a, of a, mon- of a monastery in, um, in around Homs, Mother Agnes Mariam, was sick of the numbers game. You know, initially they were saying so many people killed, so many people killed, and it was all uh, the fault of the dictator Bashar al-Assad. She started demanding that we have names of these people, basically, because they were, they'd been recycling photos forever and, um, and including their own fighters as civilians, you know. So she began that push to say, no, we want the names of the people. If you've got pictures of, of people here, we want their names, who their families are. They're, they're human beings. They're not numbers in a in, in a sports match well just to contrast um like what we see in the news and all these propaganda campaigns these these videos that get put out these stories like from the one guy who calls himself the syrian observatory of human rights um i know for your book and um well before your book just in your research that you did when you started looking into syria you have a lot of contacts within syria with whom you talk about these sorts of things. And like you said, you've made several trips to Syria. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about what the Syrians that you know tell you, um, maybe just about life and or what they see about, what they think about the situation, the or maybe what they would like to see or what they would like Westerners to know about what's really going on. Well, the... the um I mean, you have to use Syrian sources. You have to use independent sources. I made the point in the book that in any conflict, we need to look as much for as much independent evidence as we can. You know, the problem is that the U.S. has tried to set itself up as both a player and an arbiter of what's going on there. And in normal terms of assessing evidence, you don't allow people who are engaged in a conflict to assess a conflict. But so we have to look at Syrian sources and other sources that are available. And I point out in the book that I've used. A lot of Western sources, not because they're any better, but because, one, there's the language factor, what, what sort of information have people got access to in the English-speaking world. Another one is when there are admissions, for example, from senior US officials that their allies are funding ISIS, then, you know, that's worth more than half a dozen Iraqi MPs who are saying, even if they're eyewitnesses to the US backing ISIS in, in Iraq, for example. So... If you talk to the Syrians, and once once you start talking to Syrians, you find out there there are indeed a lot of Syrian voices there. They've been, you know, banned or disqualified or whatever. But there are independent sources in Syria, and there are private uh, media channels and so on, as well as official government ones and so on. Um, but if you're talking about the general situation in Syria now, there's a great deal of hope. For example, in Damascus, um, with the effectively the the cease of the the constant mortaring of Damascus, which had been going on for years. Um, There was, when I got there last month, there was at least 40 days where no mortars had fallen in in Damascus, or almost no no mortars had fallen. And that was a huge relief to the populations. You could see the relief there. 
um, the, the liberation of Palmyra, the fact that the Syrian army with its allies took back that enormously iconic historic site in Palmyra from the from ISIS without a you know any support at all from the the US led coalition that was enormously important uh, in Syria but at the same time you have to recognize that there's there are huge economic difficulties in Syria because of the war because of the sanctions i mean the Syrians often talk about the fact that this other war against them is are these sanctions that the Europeans and the US are now trying to strangle them economically they admit it you know we we saw it before with Iraq you remember Hundreds of thousands of children said to have died through the 90s from the, those sanctions against Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't have much impact on the Iraqi government, but certainly hurt a lot of people. So the sanctions and the shortages of the war, the fact that the armed groups also attack a lot of infrastructure and steal it too. A lot of factories were stolen and directly shipped into Turkey, for example. ISIS did the same in Palmyra. Um, pharmaceutical factories are destroyed. So... The end result is you've got a lot of very low salaries in Syria and very high prices, enormous shortages. So only because there's very strong social bonds in the country and um, the social infrastructure is very good, the roads and everything are very good, there's subsidised bread, you know, there's a lot of social support there, but incomes are very, very low and uh, prices are very high. So economically they've, they face a lot of challenges um, and the sanctions are an important plank in that the sanctions and the terrorist groups function together in that sort of way. So there are a lot of challenges and a lot of the debate, the internal political debate in Syria now is about those real economic challenges and um, as well as the war, not just the war. But life goes on, you know, sometimes they say it's normal and you can't really say it's normal. They have got used to everyday life though in a, you know, the whole country is effectively a war zone. Uh, they are winning. They know that they are winning that war, but it's a terrible cost because every family has lost members in this war. There's something approaching 100,000 Syrian soldiers have died in this conflict. Um, so it's not at all one-sided, um, that sort of suffering there. And the, the mortars that are now raining on Aleppo and killing civilians, the, the truth is distorted, of course, in the Western media, but... Um, that's another level of, of suffering that the Syrians are really, really distressed about. But they're very determined to follow this through and expel the armed groups from all all of the populated centres. Uh, Tim, so back in 2013, uh, we had you know the US just on the verge of attacking Syria um, mm-hmm. because of, of the alleged chemical weapons attacks on its own um, citizens. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia very cleverly took something that Kerry said and uh, challenged the U.S. to allow Syria to give up its chemical weapons and uh, and and basically um, have them shipped off to Sweden or whatever, wherever it was. Yeah. And then uh, we have this uh, speech in 2015, this uh, remarkable speech by Putin at the U.N., uh, calling the U.S. out on all of, all of its dirty tricks and shortly after, uh, going after uh, ISIS in a really effective way and all of these other groups that are in mm. Syria. Um, and yet there is still this relentless push um, on the part of the U.S., it seems. Uh, it, it's, it's as though there's this um, immovable object and unstoppable force at work uh, between the forces of, of U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar and Israel and now Russia, 
you know, added to Iran, Hezbollah, uh, and and the forces in in Iraq and Syria, and it just doesn't seem as though there's going to be any kind of um, satisfactory resolution to this un- unless something much bigger happens. That's just my impression. But mm-hmm. uh, getting back to what uh, Corey was saying a little earlier, uh, just looking at the situation now, um, do you anticipate or, or can you see any developments that can be predictive or suggest with high probability what what may be likely to occur there? Well, the first thing is I think that the the dip- diplomatic process is really important, but it's important in terms of winding back the war, winding back the political will of the players behind the armed groups, the US, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Israel. Maybe Israel will never accept it, but um, because they're going to end up in a worse position if if Syria emerges more strongly. And, of course, one thing to recognise is even though there's approaching 100,000 casualties in the Syrian army, um, that's been renewed. The public support for the army is extremely strong, extremely strong. And in terms of experience, that Syrian army has become probably the strongest army in the entire region these days, particularly when you factor in the, the Russian air support and the Iranian support and Hezbollah support. So <clears throat> really it's the, the, the military victories on the ground are underwriting the political control of, of Syria's future. There's no real possibility at all, for example, I believe, that neither the US nor anyone else will have a a say in shaping a so-called transitional government in Syria. That's simply not going to happen um, because we know what they want. Um, they want to overthrow the government and have some divided, um, balkanised state or some weak government there. That didn't even work in Iraq. So it's going to work even less in Syria, basically, and they're losing the grip on Iraq there. So politically speaking, the problem is, I suppose, there are expectations amongst those that support the terrorist groups that they will have a say in some political transition. Um, the other side to that is, and this goes to the point you made about the U.S. sort of uh, failed, intervent- failed intervention in late 2013 because of that clever initiative by, by President Putin. Um, the U.S. or the, the Obama administration really wanted a way down out of a tree they got themselves up into a tree. They talked about this red line thing. There was a fake incident. They knew it was a fake incident. It was run by their proxy armies, the chemical one in East Ghouta. Um, but, you know, their credibility as a player in the region was at stake. And so they were about to launch a missile attack. And then that was diffused by that, by that Russian initiative there. But it showed another thing that they didn't really have, or the Obama administration didn't have a stomach for direct intervention in Syria at that stage, even that long ago. Even less so, they've got it now. And I think the contenders for the presidency in the US, I don't think any of them really, for all of their bluster, have really got the stomach for a new a new failed intervention there, particularly with the Russians involved. That's always been the fear of the US in their, in their dealings with Syria, that the Soviet Union before Russia now would create a lot of dangers for them, basically. So... Um, but they certainly want to weigh down over a tree. You know, Washington doesn't like to lose. It's not a good loser. Uh, it, it, the resolution of the Vietnam War, you might remember, took really seven years from when they knew they were losing to when they got out. Uh, hopefully it won't take that long in Syria. But there's that danger. They're looking for a way out. And that's, I think, partly answered by 
the quite clever diplomacy of Putin. Remember that uh, President Putin has never really confronted in uh, ideological terms the US role in Syria. They've really said, you know, let's fight ISIS together. And even though everyone knows they're doing different things there, but they've really adopted the US language about, uh, you know, the protective intervention language or whatever that the US has been running on Syria for the last few years. So um, there's not going to be a political resolution in Geneva, but you have to say, I have to say after being in Syria a few weeks ago, that the ceasefire definitely had some beneficial impacts. Um, one was with the fact that Syria and Russia and Iran and Hezbollah were prevailing, a lot of the smaller groups were surrendering and taking advantage of amnesties, for example. Um, so in other words, the, the, the Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda link groups were being more and more uh, defined and isolated in a way. Also, the fact that the mortars stopped in Damascus. If they didn't stop in Aleppo, at least they stopped in Damascus. And that's hugely important. I mean, people, any, any person, any group of people want a respite from more. They don't want mortars falling on their heads every day as their children go to school, basically. And that's what these so-called moderate rebels were doing, um, sending these crude um, gas canister, homemade mortar bombs called hell cannons into the cities and God knows whose head they land on, basically, but they do land on, on people's heads. So um, where is the way that the U.S. can find a, you know, a retreat with some sort of dignity? Russia is now even praising them as helping in the war against ISIS when everyone knows that that's not the case, basically. But So that diplomatic process to try and give the U.S. a way out, to try and find some sort of um, face-saving efforts while... Um, building some of these local ceasefires that give ordinary people a respite from this violence. That's not going to happen in Aleppo because really that's the centre of the big confrontation. Now ISIS is sending people from Raqqa across to Aleppo. Um, the Jabhat al-Nusra and the others have launched a counter-offensive. The Syrian army's just beginning a, a big offensive there. There's going to be a huge battle there to reclaim that city. But um, the political will of the of the people that support these terrorist groups, the governments that support these terrorist groups, has to be managed or massaged in some sort of way that doesn't look like a massive defeat for them. I guess that's the the main hope in having them back off their their support. Also, I suppose it's possible; it's still possible. Whoever wins the presidential race in uh, in the U.S. is going to want to distance themselves from failed policies of the Obama administration in in Libya and, and Syria. Well, you're, I just want to add that, um, you know, your appraisal of the situation, you know, as regards to, to the political will of the people and uh, the ceasefire, uh, it's encouraging. Uh, and I, I share your hope uh, that it's going to help stabilize Syria in the long run. Um although given all of the interventions of various kinds by the U.S. and the West over the past few years, uh, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm also kind of, um, what's the word, uh, cautious too and, and a little nervous. Well, the stakes are very high, aren't they? The stakes are very high because uh, they're losing control of Iraq as well as they lose in Syria. So the, whole, the role of the U.S. in the whole region is really at stake with this, the fact that the Syrian resistance has 
has forced them into a defeat and that I'm certain that Washington wants to avoid the image of a humiliating defeat, mm-hmm. but privately they must admit that their whole project is really going off the rails at the moment. How they're going to manage that is, is, is a tricky question. Well, Tim, then, then one final question. Is, it, is the U.S. position on this, is the reason that they are so um, stubborn in pursuing this policy, the policy that they've been pursuing in Syria for years, is it just that they, that they don't want to admit a mistake? Or is there another reason why Syria just seems so important to them, why they are not backing down from their policy? Oh, yes. Well, I try and set this up in the book, very early in the book, the, the chapter about the Washington, the New Middle East, that the project was there at least from, at least from the Bush administration, early days of the Bush administration to reshape the entire region, you know, as a, a beacon of freedom and all the rest of it. But what it meant was that they would subjugate all the governments of the region, uh, all the independent governments, you know, and uh, they destroyed Libya. It worked there. They, they thought they had destroyed and had control of Afghanistan and Iraq. That's not nearly so certain these days. And the only independent states that remained were Syria and Iran. And uh, they had to get to Iran through Syria. They've given up effectively on Iran to a, to a fair degree, just as they gave up on Cuba, I suppose, mm-hmm. more recently, you know, but they've maintained their economic sanctions. So they've They've, Washington changed its project in relation to uh, Cuba and in relation to Iran during this conflict, and uh, they're going to have to change their approach to Syria in some sort of way. But as I said, they'll look for some face-saving mechanism that doesn't appear that they they're, they're, have been defeated in a humiliating sort of way. But certainly their project to dominate the entire Middle East is collapsing because of what's been going on in Syria. So Syria, Syria really sounds as if it is the, the battleground between the empire and its resistance. And I guess that that, that opens up the possibility of, um, you know, if there is a, a positive solution to this crisis, however, whatever form that will take, it will result in a strengthened you know, axis of resistance in the Middle East to the American empire. And I guess the... The other possibility is just that it will descend into even more chaos before that point is reached. But yes. it's very, it's very interesting to watch. It's very depressing to watch. But it's also there's the I think there's also that essence of hope that you know well well at least hopefully something good might come come out of this. Well, indeed, because precisely because of the aggression, the the resistance has grown, has strengthened effectively. As I said, the the most symbolic. Uh, element of that is the fact that Baghdad has has joined in very strong, close relationships with both Syria and Iran, something that Washington never wanted to happen. Well, I think we'll end it there, Tim. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? Maybe um, do you have any websites that you want to to give to our listeners that they can go to, either for your own work or others? No, I suppose just that the book book is available at Global Research. You you already mentioned that, but that book's available. I believe the hard copies are coming out later this month too, but the electronic version is available now, and uh, maybe you can direct them to that one. All right, well, we'll include a link on our page. Um, I just want to thank you again, Tim. It's been been great talking to you, and I I hope we can keep in touch and, and learn more about what's going on. Thanks very much. Thank you for being on, Tim. My pleasure. All right, and I th- joining us now in the studio, I think we've got Joe and Neil. 
Guys, are you there? Yep, we're here. Oh, hey, how's it going? Hi. Hello. Hey, hey nice guys. <laughs> so, yeah, for listeners, Hello. this is our, our new format. This is a Behind the Headlines show. We're doing, uh, Behind the Headlines, we'll be covering kind of news-related stuff and current events, and Truth Perspective, we'll be doing kind of uh, other topics and interviews, history, psychology, weird stuff. So we're happy to have you guys here. Well, we're very happy to be here. It's great to be on Behind the Headlines. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah. You know. Good interview, guys. Yeah, thanks. It was great to talk with Tim. He, like I, like we said, he's been covering this stuff in depth. And if you just go to his Facebook page, it's public and you can follow him. And he posts like tons of updates every day, links to articles, videos, and just news bites that you won't find anywhere else, really. So check him out. Mm-hmm. And actually, earlier in the show, at the beginning, I mentioned uh, that that clip of John Kirby. Um, I've actually got it, or one of them, and so I'm just going to play it so we can have a little bit of a laugh and maybe make fun of him a bit. So, one sec. Excellent. If Al-Nusra is obviously in, in certain areas of Aleppo, and they keep bombarding other areas, would that should that give the government or government troops the right to go ahead and, and respond or defend itself and attack it? So... Look, look, let me say a couple of things here. I mean, Aleppo, it's its no, it's certainly no surprise to anybody. I mean, that in Aleppo, it, it's a very fluid, dynamic environment. Um, and you have interspersed and intermingled, frankly, in neighborhoods in Aleppo, um, groups like al-Nusra, which are not party to the cessation and are legitimate targets. And you also have opposition groups. Um, that uh, that are party to the cessation, um, and there is, uh, there is a, a lot of intermingling that, that's happening because it is such a fluid, dynamic environment. Well, have, have you told them? Have we told who? Have you told, for lack of a better phrase, your guys? Have you told them to get out? We have we have certainly communicated our concerns about uh, the situation in Aleppo and the cessation. Um, and the very fluid nature of the situation there. We certainly have relayed that to uh, opposition groups that we're in direct contact with. We've also... And is it your uh, understanding that they have heeded your advice or your calls? Well, I are, think you can they, just see by 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 what's going on that there continues to be uh, there continues to be so an intermingling. They're, so they're not listening to you. Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm just saying no. that you continue to look, we continue to see a very fluid, dynamic right. situation on the ground. Obviously, we'd like to see the intermingling avoided. I counted. What intermingling uh, is he talking about there? <laughs> this is the intermingling of the moderate rebels with Al Nusra in Aleppo province right. and elsewhere. Quit intermingling. <laughs> and as you know, Joe, it's a very fluid situation. A fluid what dynamic. Is, well, well, this guy Kirby is a is a is a rear admiral, uh, a retired rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. You know, and that's I think that's pretty much the, one of the highest uh, ranks you can get in the, in the Navy. You know, so he would know all about fluid uh, fluid situations, having spent most of his life on the sea. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he's like, yeah, uh, it's kind of fluid. Um, it takes me back. Oh, hang on, I'm having a flashback to the Navy. Uh, water from horizon to horizon. The situation is fluid. Yeah, I mean. What he should say there is, you know, like, look, I'm a rear admiral, right? Uh, I just, you know, uh, I, I spent a lot of time uh, at sea, you know, and all I saw was the sea. And as everybody knows, it's fluid there, you know, and um, it's very difficult to tell, for example, one way from the next. 
they're all kind of fluid, right? They're made of the same fluid. So it's difficult to tell. And that, that's the same situation as in Aleppo right now. You have some fluid rebels of one description and fluid rebels of another description, and it's fluid. And I don't want to say that they're not listening to me uh, because I don't talk to them at all. I'm just reading from a script that I was given <laughs> by the CIA. Yeah, it's like the sharks and the, dol- the dolphins. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to prevent intermingling between the sharks and the dolphins. Right. But uh, we didn't have much success because, you know, the situation's fluid. Right. Thanks, John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the guy's just full of, full of shit. I mean, what, what I want to know is how they... Uh, are, how, the, how the State Department, the U.S. State Department, can pick those people. I mean, you had a... You had what do you call her? Um, Saki. Saki. Yeah, Jen Saki. And then we went. And then we went to uh, Blondie. What was her name? Harf, oh, she was like, yeah, she was the other one. Um, Harf. Yeah. Harf. 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 Barf. Harf. Harfy. Barfy. And so it was like Jen Saki was just screwing up all over the place. Then they bring in this Harfy Barfy person who's almost like a cookie cutter, like just a, a, cook, a cutout of Saki, but like with a different face. And she's just messing things up all over the place as well. And they say, okay, the, our problem obviously is a woman here. The, the, these women aren't working out. Let's get a guy. And then they shunt in Kirby. And Kirby is just like, uh, you know, he's just like BSing people left, right, and center. And I mean, even the most simple questions that are, you know, self-evident questions, like the reporters there, the journalists sitting in the, in the press room are like, they're just asking stuff that is patently obvious. So uh, what you're saying, you know, <laughs> he'd come out with a line of bullshit and then they'll say, so what you're saying is X, Y, and Z, which is exactly what, he, what, what the answer is. And he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. But you kind of just did say that. No, no, look, I don't want to go over this again. <laughs> It does be such a horrible job, unless the guy is just a nutcase and enjoys it. But can you imagine having to go out there and be a sane person and know that you just have to field increasing, uh, or not field, but you have to spout increasing levels of nonsense and bullshit that that really don't answer the question, and you don't have any answers, real answers to any of the questions. Certainly not ones that you can actually, not you don't have any information you can actually give out. Mm-hmm. And then you have to do it. Tell the truth. You have to do yeah, it with this fake sense of of um, sincerity and right, right, yeah. It's like your remit is to go out there and tell lies, and you know they're lies. It's not that you think that's the truth. You know that they're lies, and you have to just stop the truth from getting out at all costs. But the thing is, you know, the truth in those situations, the truth is like a giant elephant in the State Department press room. And sitting there trumpeting and wrecking the place, you know. Yeah. And John Kirby saying, that's not our truth. I don't know what that elephant is. Well, I've never seen it before. <laughs> their fail-safe is that those State Department press brief- briefings don't make the nighttime news in the U.S. Right. We only know about them because RT show them. Mm-hmm. And that's mainly on the internet. Yeah, they are made publicly available. But So, well, of course, the Americans will only see the, the other guy, Ernest, in the White House. Yeah. Press room, and he's got all sorts. And that's questions. carefully controlled. There's no way any anything um, yeah. will be. Well, you can imagine that uh, places, people like the C, like our organization, like CNN and um, other news networks and stuff, would not carry the kind of crap that Saki, Harf, and Kirby are not, is now coming out with because it's just embarrassing. I mean, there's uh, clear and present danger 
there if they were to show that to the American people that even you know the most uh, clueless amongst uh, people in, in Western countries would go uh, I think he's telling a lie <laughs> I think he's not being honest you know just be uh, pretty obvious so they kind of yeah well there was uh, there was another clip um, with I think I can't remember if it was Mark Toner or John Kirby but it, I think it was also from Friday and there was this one reporter asking about I'm pretty sure it was about the recent news about the F-16 sales to Pakistan I believe and he was asking well who's paying for for the planes and so Toner says oh well I'm going to have to refer you to this to the White House on that and then 15 minutes later in the same press conference the the same reporter says oh well you know I was just on my phone here and talking to <clears throat> my colleague in the in the White House press department and they referred us to the state department and so, so, so right there, live, they were getting bounced back and forth. And uh, Ernest, I, I believe, who's the White House guy, uh, or you know, back and forth, whoever it was they were, they were talking to, said, "Oh, well, uh, we're going to have to ban Wi-Fi in the in these from now on." But seriously, I was I was being I was being totally honest. You know, I I was under the impression that that was a White House question. So yeah, it's just a. Total just joke. I don't know. They just, just pick those people are picked for being, you know, they probably spot them in the, uh, you know. In the in the milieu that hang around, you know, Washington and the Pentagon and stuff, and they just throw up uh, names like they pick those people that have been the spokespeople in the State Department uh, for their. I don't know. They probably have a particular, you know, set of uh, qualities or characteristics that make them eligible for that job. You know, ass one of them is probably that they're really re- ass kissing, and also that maybe that they're really really annoying uh, kind of people. You know. And maybe it's seen as the worst job in government type thing, you know. But because these people are really annoying and not very bright, they think it's a really cool job. <laughs> Who can we put up there that will repel press interest? Hmm. Yeah, or just drive them insane with by, by not answering a question. Who can not answer a question in as many different ways as possible? The other one's the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's interesting what he was saying there. I mean, you know, it is a bit of a joke. It's a farce, you know, uh, mingling. Yeah. Our, our guys, did you hear a guy from, um, I think he's from, isn't he from RT? Or not RT. Uh, uh, AP, Matt Lee, right? AP, Matt Lee, yeah. Uh, I'm saying, so, for want of a better word, your guys, uh, have you told them to get out of Aleppo? And he said, uh, yeah, we, we, we've, we've told them, but there's intermingling. Uh, well, have you told them not to intermingle? <laughs> yeah, but... We didn't know how to translate that word into Arabic, so. Uh, but he, he actually avoided the, he avoided the the question. He didn't answer it directly, so he didn't say he didn't answer yes. He said, "Well, we've made them aware of the situation and the dan- the possible like dangers, and yet, but as you see from the situation on the ground, they are obviously um, not heeding those warnings, and so they are still there." But he never actually denies uh, or yeah. affirms. The, that they were that they mm-hmm. told them to get out. So yeah, I mean, they're really, not they're not allowed they're not allowed to be caught in a situation where they've expressly said that they're in direct communication with particular groups in the, in Syria or in the region in general. Mm. You have the same situation. There was a, a Senate hearing, and U.S. generals were up with Ash Carter this week as well, and it was a similar kind of. Um, non-answers given evasiveness, but at least there, in that case, they they expressly cite national security, i.e. I can't answer that question 
because we're not able to say it's an ongoing active operation, yada, yada. We can't say who exactly we're talking to. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when it comes back to Kirby in the State Department, he won't ever say, yes, we relayed the message to X. Because next week, that group X might be uh, the bad guy in the media. Mm-hmm. And they don't want anyone to be able to refer back to it. They're trying not to get themselves caught in uh, their own words, basically. Of course, they are already in a complete knot. But they think that being evasive and uh, citing national security and so on uh, keeps the situation, as you said, fluid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Leaves open so many possibilities. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, if they don't have a, a specific person that they're directing um, this information to, uh, no one's accountable. Uh, it's like practically the same situation with the Geneva talks where, you know, you don't really have any kind of legitimate leaders uh, taking responsibility, uh, you know, offering a, a kind of alternate plan uh, in in ruling Syria in a way that would be better than Assad's, which is their whole kind of platform. Uh, so there's never any accountability. There's there's no one uh, in a in a place of uh, legitimate, um, you know, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. Uh, and the way, the way that uh, the U S has set it up, you know, people are, people are buying it or ignoring it, or they just don't know that that, that the dynamic is just that fluid. Mm-hmm. In a, in Aleppo right now, we mentioned just briefly during the interview, what was going on, but there is, a Syrian army offensive going on right now in Aleppo. And just from the last few days, the news is that the the U.S. and Russia and Syria have announced this so-called regime of silence in the province of Latakia, which is to the northwest. Mm-hmm. That's where the Russian airbase is, and in the city of Damascus. So it's basically like a, a ceasefire within a ceasefire. So uh, it's supposed to last uh, a three days in Latakia and a day in Damascus, and it just got extended for another day in Damascus, I believe. So there's, and apparently it's been successful so far, and so basically the the idea was that the fighting would, would stop completely in Latakia and Damascus. There have been um, kind of incursions and, and fights going on in those regions still. Um, in, Latakia, in Latakia, which is on the border with Turkey, they've had, um, you know, several mountaintops that have been taken and then retaken by other forces and it goes back and forth and so it's been kind of a drain on the on syrian resources so the the hnc the saudi-backed opposition group at the in the geneva conventions has said that the syrian army is using this regime of silence in order to regroup and send more troops to aleppo which is probably true and i think that's probably the best thing to do because aleppo is where they need to be right now and so that well, that's going on. We'll see what happens in the next couple of days with the the Battle of Aleppo. But right after this um, regime of silence was announced, just in the past day or two, there have been you no know, well, coincidentally or not, there have been um, car bombings in Iraq, Syria, um, where else? Turkey and Russia. There was one just this morning in Russia. So they just. To me, these just mm-hmm. seem to come up all out of nowhere. I mean, we've seen car bombings like in the news pretty much weekly, but this was four of them in like 24 hours. So I, mean, I was just wondering if maybe those were connected. Mm. 
Well, it's always hard to know. You know, you have to look each one. But certainly, yeah. the the bombings in uh, in Iraq uh, are just a continuation of um, uh, the, the last uh, the, the influence or the effects of uh, U.S. military uh, invasion and presence in Iraq since uh, since two thousand three. Since they invaded, I mean. Um, you know, in 2003, when the invasion happened, Iraq was basically uh, overtaken, and, and uh, you know, there's a long process, obviously, there of um, <clears throat> of the U.S. attempting to cr- turn Iraq into a country that would, uh, you know, effectively be in in the pocket of of the U.S. But um, it hasn't necessarily gone in that direction. And but throughout all those years, when things weren't going in the direction, or trying to try and keep. Iraq on a certain course and it's going in a certain political political direction. Um, they use those kind of terror attacks, you know, um, either directly or indirectly. They they had their proxies uh, carrying out kind of bombings, and they have not ceased. That's what people don't realize is that. I mean, you mentioned one just uh, yesterday, um, killing a lot of people. They've been going on continually for the past uh, thirteen years, uh, and that is a direct result of the U.S. Uh, having invaded the country. Of course, you know, uh, worse than that is the fact that they've killed uh, one and a half million people and kind of destroyed the country. And now they're just trying to kind of, you know, put pressure on. Uh, and of course, Daesh or ISIS or whatever is, is a part of that. All of these these bombings are now uh, ascribed to uh, Daesh and uh, or ISIS. And um, you notice that mm-hmm. in 2000, after 2003, it was... Uh, uh, Zakari or um, Al Qaeda, who is doing it, and then Al Qaeda. Maybe notice the way Al Qaeda. If you just remember, I mean, people have a memory, right? Uh, some people do. Uh, just you know, it's not that long ago. It was fairly. It should have played a fairly big part in people's minds over the past thirteen years of the U.S. war on terror, right? I mean, it was new. It started after nine eleven. It's we didn't have an unending global war on terrorism before nine eleven, and we had it afterwards. It's 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 almost. Probably one of the, the defining aspects of the past thirteen years, and it's, and it's going on. Um, but are people, as part of that awareness of, of that whole war on terror and what's what's happened since nine eleven, realize or just notice the way that Al Qaeda just kind of disappeared and are transformed in some way into ISIS, and it turned into Syria, and now it's kind of. And then there's a, the bombing and the attack, the NATO attack on Libya, but now Daesh is in. I mean, it's just make it up as you go along, basically. You know, and if, if you just understand that it's it's imperialism by proxy, it it's fairly clear that, that what's actually happening and how the you know all, what it comes down to is terror attacks, is bombings and terrorism and blowing up people and blowing things up. I mean, that's the basic, that's the fundamental essence of Western foreign policy. If they're not blowing things up directly with their own Tomahawk cruise missiles or troops or uh, warplanes, then they're doing it by proxy using uh, using their guys as uh, as as they were described, uh, you know, just terrorist proxy terrorist armies that they keep a distance from, but do exactly the same thing uh, as the U.S. military does and has done. You know, mm-hmm. um, in 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 any country that they want to to control, they blow things up. 
they blow people up. They plant bombs in mm. marketplaces. What's the difference between a Daesh bomb blowing up in a in a marketplace or a bunch of uh, Marine U.S. Marine grunts storming in to a neighborhood and kicking down doors and shooting twenty people? Uh, uh, the fact is exactly the same. You know, you terrorize people. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter what they say. You know, of course, this this is my whole problem. You know, is the fact that um, I don't mind. To a certain extent, I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm willing to to let it let it exist, let it be uh, that people in this world would want to bomb and intimidate and murder and uh, terrorize uh, other people of a country into into submission. Uh, that's fine, but I just want them, the people who actually do that, who push that policy forward, and who have used that policy for several hundred years. I just want them, and who are still using it today, I want them to be uh, honest about it. I want them to admit it. What annoys me more than anything else, more than the actual killing and slaughter, if, it, if it's possible to even imagine that, more than the killing and slaughter, or certainly on a par with it, is the fact that the people who are doing it are not only not admitting to it, but they are claiming to be doing exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's, I mean, that's just, that, that doesn't get any worse than They're that, claiming you know, to be preventing it. Or preventing it, or trying to stop it while they're doing it, can't really get any more uh, disgusting or uh, reprehensible. Mm. You know, it's one thing for someone to go out in a fit of rage or greed or whatever, and you know, steal and kill or whatever because they wanted stuff. But to then ha- to not only be in a position to do it, but then to go ahead and uh, claim that you were actually um, trying to prevent that from happening, somehow I've been able to manage it where. Mm you can go in and kill and murder and slaughter and then say, yes, we need to stop this. This is terrible. Who is doing this kind of, who's, who's doing all, all this uh, wanton destruction and terrorism? Who's carrying this out? This is terrible. We need to do something about it. We're going to get in there and stop it happening. And they go in and they do some more. Uh, it's kind of annoying. You know? I can't think of anything any bit more annoying, than, much more annoying than that, you know? And the yeah. fact that they stake I mean, their whole existence on it, uh, you know, <clears throat> the entire existence for America is to spread freedom and democracy to the entire world, and it's been that way since mm. the, the very first days of the revolution. The founding fathers have said that, you know, right. and we got our constitution, we got our freedom, we got our Bible, now we're going to the rest of the world to save everybody from the evildoers. Uh, the communism well, came you, up, and, and then, you know, right. now flash forward, and, you know, year after year, just war after war after war, and, it's, it's hmm. yeah, I can see what you're saying. Hey, well, I mean, bring it down to a personal level. Can you imagine uh, someone who does that in, you know, personally, like someone in your personal space or in your personal environment, uh, in your local environment, uh, someone you know who persistently goes around um, <clears throat> doing things that uh, affect you negatively uh, and then barefaced says, uh, no, that I didn't. That wasn't me. Or it doesn't even get to the point where they say it. No. They, they immediately point to someone else and say they did. But you know it was them. That's, you know pro- it was them. that's the problem. Keep- they're never on the defensive, or rarely. It's only yeah, from us the fringe yeah. dissidents. Yeah. As soon as they do something that, that, to, to affect you negatively, they rush over and say, "What? What happened? Who did that? You know, let's get let's get the person who did that. What happened there? You know, they're running up behind you, slapping you in the back of the head, then going, "He ran that way." You know, and <laughs> and but eventually, after a while, you start. You can't do that so often before you go. You know. I know it's you that's doing this. Why? But you've been but doing this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and can you imagine how annoying that would be? You know, if somebody persistently did that and would never ever admit to it. You know, 
I would any time there was any sense that that you were going to challenge them on it or, or point out that they're the ones who are doing it, they they just up their propaganda. I mean, it's kind of crazy making. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, if you know someone's doing that, it's kind of like really annoying. But it's 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 also kind of gaslighting. The term gaslighting, kind of psychological kind of term, where people will yeah. basically do stuff and then deny that they did it. You it's, know, and it's mess a, with your head. Basically, it's kind of like they're doing that to the globe or to as many people that are are watching as possible. Uh, it's a key. It's a key planet. key component of why terror works. Um. The, the unknown source of the terror. Okay, they go on and on and they have narratives about who they are. So they're basically Muslim, basically fanatics, yeah, and so on. But still, it, it's, um, they hadn't quite clicked with the masses of people. It's still a largely unknown. Well, well, who exactly? And now and then there's a trial or there's some kind of process, um, trial by media, even some, mm. something, anything. Give me a face and a name. But, but, but that can't. happens. It but, actually doesn't happen enough. To, to satisfy, well, how was I going to say it? it? There's still this vast unknown. It's like this unknown terror that just interjects right. that's why out we of keep, nowhere. The bomb goes off in the marketplace. That's why we keep calling it the boogeyman. They may as well say the boogeyman. I mean, in fact, psychologically, the effect is uh, on the average person of these terror attacks, particularly in, in, well, anywhere in the world, but in Western Europe, etc., is to say, the boogeyman did it, and he's under your bed. Who planted that bomb? Who planted that bomb in the marketplace that I nearly died in, but I saw loads of people dying in and I lost family members? That was a boogeyman. They're coming to get you. Mm. And we were like, okay, well, can you protect us against the boogeyman? I mean, is there some way we can stop the boogeyman from doing that? Yep. Just rely on us. We'll do it for you. Okay. May as well call. You know, may, you may as well use that term as as ISIS, Al Qaeda, Daesh. I mean, they're going to go through them all. You know. In a few years, there'll be a day, Daesh will, our ISIS will have disappeared and there'll be a new name. And eventually, I think they will actually get to Boogeyman. They'll have run out of terms to describe people and they'll just say, uh, or Al Boogie or something. You know, Al Boogeyman. Al Boogeyman. Refer to the terror. The terror did it. Yeah. The terror. It the was, nothing. It was like, the nothing. Like the never ending story. The nothing. Well, that's it, the never-ending story. It, it's not just even that the, there's an additional twist where when people then look to their leaders with the question on their face saying, well, can you protect us from it? They don't directly say, yes, you're safe with us. Mm. That's obviously the message coming through all the time. But they say, well, kind of. It's going to take like forever and we need this and this and this and this and this and this. Please sign here. Mm. Uh, okay. And then people are like, that sounds a bit unreasonable. I don't want to do that. And people just kind of walk away and then they say, okay, hit him again. Push that button again. Push the shark button again. Pavlov, Pavlov dog, dog them again. And they're hoping that eventually people will succumb, you know. They'll break people's spirit, spirits in this way, you know. And people, they're fighting a, an uphill battle really on that one, you know. Because like you were just saying, they lay... They um, can never investigate these things too much. I mean, it's not a real, genuine threat. On, on, there's two 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 problems. One is uh, in, in that it's not in it not being a real, genuine threat. There's two problems. One is you can't actually investigate it too much, or, or have a full media investigation, and you know, in a genuine way, figure out what's going on. Uh, and the second one is that um, if it was a real, genuine threat, it would be pretty quickly dealt with and it would be gone. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, you look at the way they go into these countries and like look what they did to Libya, right? Libya was a thriving state, you know, six million people, a leader forty years, loved by the people, decent enough army, you know, uh f- decent infrastructure, everything. Uh and they were able to go in there and in eleven months destroy the place, kill the leader and ruin the country. That's just NATO. Um but apparently maybe twenty, thirty Maybe twenty, thirty, thirty thousand um, jihadis are just somehow unstoppable. Well, uh, you know, I mean that speaks to the fact that you know that there's a lot of bullshit going on here. You know, mm-hmm. there's a there's a disconnect between uh, what they claim. You know, they're, they're conjuring fantasies. Like I said, mm-hmm. keep going back to the boogeyman. It's this unstoppable force that just kind of uh, you know almost uh, it's kind of abstract or you know it's. Uh, it has a, a certain level of unreality to it because a major part of it is to scare people. You know, it's like a fairy story, a scary story. Uh, and that, but that unreality has, has, has a real basis as well in the fact that it is unreal, you know, in the sense that there isn't a major network of Muslim terrorists, you know, who are really well trained and can come into any country anywhere in the world and, you know, kill lots of people and then just disappear again like ninjas. You know, they're they're jihadi ninjas. You know, um, so it's. I think the pro. And that kind of, what I'm trying to say here is that is, is kind of speaks to what you were saying of, of what you were saying about the fact that people it isn't it isn't taking hold in people's minds. People aren't able even to get a uh, a proper grasp of it and understand it as something real. And I think that's. It points to the nature, the unreal, the, the bullshit nature of the, of the actual threat, and also the fact that they want it to be that way. Because when they keep it kind of nebulous and stuff like that, um, it keeps people scared, but it's also posed a problem for them in that people tend to just go, oh, if it's not real, yeah. if it's not, I don't really feel like it's a real threat to me, so I'm not really going to be scared, yeah. so I'm not really going to assign, give powers, you know, totalitarian powers, whatever, to government and stuff, you know? Yeah, because if the terror wears off, if the effect of the sense of danger, of threat, of physical threats wears off, and all you're left with is the unknown, who exactly is doing this? Yeah. Then a fairly calm, rational person is asking the question. And it's much harder for you to satisfy him if he's not also terrified. Right. You know? Well, yes. Which is why they have to keep doing it. Speaking of being terrorized, um, like with the... Like you guys have said, with the jihadi threat, people aren't really buying it in a lot of cases. But in the U.S., at least, there is a very real threat from a different group. Um, and who could that be? <laughs> and who could that be? Well, I think right now we can, uh, if you guys are cool with that, yep. we can go to Brent's weekly police state roundup. So let's find out what's going on here. Play the police state jingle. Here it is. Where's your boy? Show me the guy. Show me the guy. Show me the guy. We don't need a warrant. Yes, you do. Wow. They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. If you keep smiling at me like this is some kind of funny thing. Okay, I, okay. there's nothing funny about this. Okay, then stop smiling. Great, boys. Hand in your head. Do it. Do it now. Brent, are you on the line? I was live. Yeah, hey guys, can you hear me? Hey Brent, yep. Hey, 
Hey Brent, was that was that that wasn't the jingle actually this week? That was live, wasn't it, from your neighborhood? <laughs> uh, you could be. I get sirens yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, Brent's blasting um, the tunes and, and filming the police <laughs> sirens going by. Yeah, it's pretty what frequent. Got, um, what do you got for this well, week? Uh, basically, there's a number of uh, different things in the headlines. Um, first one I wanted to talk about was a dash cam video that was just released. This incident occurred back in uh, Chicago in 2013, um, but the video of it was just brought out. And basically, uh, a reverend, this lady, Catherine Brown, was heading home. Um, she was trying to pull in her driveway when a police cruiser with no lights or sirens on came barreling down towards her vehicle. And she didn't know what to do, so she slammed on her horn. And thankfully, uh, that stopped the cops from ramming her. But um, she didn't realize that they were going to get out and start to assault her. So first thing that happened was these two officers, uh, Officer Michelle Morzi uh, Murphy and Officer Jose Lopez, um, blocked her from entering her driveway and got out of their car. Um, and Officer Lopez went right up to her vehicle, pulled out his gun, and pointed it straight at her head. And keep in mind, you know, this woman had done nothing wrong. She was just trying to get home. Um, she also had two small children in her car. Um, before she can do anything, she's got a gun pointed at her head. She doesn't know what to do. So she calls 911, um, tries to back up, uh, tries to back her car up. Um, and the, I guess the police took that as some sort of slight to their authority. Um, Officer Murphy, who was still in the police cruiser, decided it was a good idea to ram into this lady's car. Um, so they ram her um, and then uh, eventually get the door open, spray her with pepper spray, you know, coating the children's. And uh, rip her out of the out of the car, throw her to the ground, um, and the dash cam video clearly shows Officer Lopez smiling while he is beating on this woman who, you know, she's innocent of any crime. Um, and like I said, that that dash cam video was just released this week. She was charged with attempted murder, um, all this stuff. But um, luckily, now that it's coming out, the the charges are are being fought. So that's just one example. Uh, the Chicago PD is notorious for being very aggressive um, and abusing their authority. There was another viral video this week from, uh, it looks like it was in North Carolina, but we're not exactly sure. It's a 50-second video of a police officer basically harassing a girl who's trying to go to the bathroom, you know, asking her for ID. And in the video, you can see... The girl, you know, she's dressed kind of, you know, gender ambiguously. Um, she's got long hair. You can clearly tell that she has breasts through her shirt. But um, nonetheless, the, the cop, you know, continues to harass her, asks her for ID. Um, and it's just this, this insanity right now in the U.S. is that coding the media is the, you know, the whole threat from genderqueer or uh, transsexual people having, you know, the right to use whatever bathroom that they feel they need to use. And this is being stealing all the headlines and it's being broadcast like left and right. Um, and it, it's like now they have these laws, uh, I think in North Carolina, they just passed, it's called HB2, which was passed into law last month, where police are now actively enforcing what they're calling toilet checks. And anybody whose gender is questionable you know, police are now asking them to, to generate ID if they want to use, you know, a certain bathroom. And this 50-second viral video has 3.5 million views already. Um, and it just really highlights how 
this these this kind of tension is just being used to give the police more authority to harass you know individuals, uh, especially you know trans individuals or genderqueer individuals, um, who really like you know suffer a brunt of, of harassment on a daily basis already. Um, right. And then uh, there's another story. Um, there's a trial happening right now for an officer who is being tried with voluntary manslaughter. Who back in January of 2014 killed 18-year-old Keith Vidal in Boiling Springs, uh, North Carolina. Um, Keith suffered from schizophrenia, and he was in the middle of having like a psychotic episode. His parents didn't know what to do, so they called 911 for help. And um, some local officers showed up, and they were you know, kind of talking him down. Um, a third officer arrived at the scene, and this is the guy that, that shot him. His name is uh, Sergeant Byron Vassy. And um, he insisted that they tase the individual. So uh, one of the other officers produced a taser, and she shocked him. He went down to the ground. And a uh, third officer you know, tackled him, was able to get on top of him, and was struggling with him. Um, then Sergeant Vassy uh, was heard saying, we don't have time for this, before walking over and shooting Vidal point blank less than two minutes after arriving on the scene. Um, and his one shot, you know, killed this, this mentally ill individual. Um, he's on trial, like I said, for voluntary manslaughter and the two other officers are testifying against him. Um, and basically it highlights, you know, this is just another incidence of police being called to, to help a situation or to deescalate a situation. And we have another, you know, another example of them just, you know, escalating at the point of killing somebody and mm -hmm. it kind of demonstrates how, you know, total no 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 care for this individual's life and you know several people were reporting that they heard him say we don't have we don't have time for this you know and as if he was frustrated by mm. you know having to, to fulfill his his duty i read that story so, so, as well brent and i think uh they also ate his liver afterward they cut it out and ate his liver <laughs> no, that's next. That's yeah that's uh, vol vol voluntary manslaughter uh, voluntary manslaughter. Isn't what is manslaughter again? Accidental killing. Uh, voluntary accidental. Uh, a voluntary accident. It's a contradiction. Yeah, it in goes terms. back to to highlight the point that whenever these officers are involved killing somebody in questionable circumstances, they are treated with you know the utmost like lightest feather touch leniency. and yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying leniency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, total leniency. Um, whether it's it's a uh, you know we're seeing more and more. At least I'm seeing more and more that they're they're actually being charged. There, you know, there seems to be more now that we people have we have video cameras and these incidences are being recorded. It's like the the narrative the police generate can't be maintained because it just becomes so clear from the evidence that they're lying. Um, you know, I want yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably. 99% of the cases uh, were uh, that have actually come to light that uh, police generally lie about things and I think that's just the tiniest percentage of stuff that goes on because most of it is covered up before it even comes to light. It reminds me of uh, of the FBI, you know. Um, it was part of the Boston bombings thing. Uh, we were writing about it at the time but it, it just came out as part of the... Uh, it was it was a friend of one of the Boston bombers who, uh, a couple of weeks or a month or two later, um, he was killed by a couple of FBI agents in his apartment. And uh, 
uh, they made up some some story uh, about you know uh, how he attacked them and stuff. But this guy apparently had a broken leg, and uh, uh, well, there's a lot of strange circumstances around it. But it was it seems like he was just executed in his, in his apartment by the FBI. But uh, the interesting point was that came out of it was the fact that uh, a, a statistic that the FBI had over the past fifteen or twenty years or something investigated uh, I don't know several hundred uh, events or, or incidents uh, where FBI agent uh, behavior was in question, and in every single one of them, they had found uh, no evidence of any wrongdoing. Not once, and I think most, I think all of them, all of them that were investigated were were people were not just incidents, were but where people were killed by FBI agents, and in every single incident, uh, they were exonerated effectively. No, but that was of course the FBI investigating itself, and of course I'd say the same as holds true for the police. The police kind of more or less, even though there may be a police ombudsman or policeman, a police kind of. Uh, an investigative body into those things. They're pretty much one and the same thing, so it amounts to the wrongdoers investigating themselves and finding themselves uh, faultless. Well, the FBI is an agency of the Department of Justice. Right. So, there's no justice. There's one other thing I just wanted to say about uh, the, in general, the kind of police brutality that has just gone through the roof in the U.S. in particular, over the past, what, 10 or 15? It seems to be since 9-11 as well. But 9-11 did something to, to everything. But anyway, um, the the question of police brutality in, um, in the U.S. and what the response uh, from the authorities is that uh, these are just a few bad apples uh, and that you should not, the vast majority, you see this from ordinary people as well, on YouTube videos, it, it almost always or invariably comes up on the comments in YouTube videos of police brutality where someone or more than one person commenting will say uh, most police are good people trying to serve and you should not criticize them all. Uh, but the, that misses the point that there are enough incidents, incidences now and have been over the past number of years of police brutality that I'd say certainly the people who are aware of them, all of those people have just cause to be very concerned about whether or not, because there's so many of them, whether or not one of those bad apples is in that car. And not only it's not a case. The number of exactly. these cases, but also the fact that it's uh, it's so easily covered up, and they these murderers get away with it uh, so easily that it just points to the institutionalization right. of this brutality. Right. Yeah. It's it's the prolific nature of it. I mean, it's not just a few bad apples. It's quite a large number of bad apples. And okay, it's still maybe a small percentage, but you know, if, well, if it's ten percent, for example, let's say there's ten percent bad apples, well, that means you've got a one in ten chance of finding a cop or being stopped by a cop in the US who may decide that he doesn't have time for this and shoots you. So yeah. with those statistics, what do you how are you gonna feel yep. whenever you get stopped I mean, by a cop car? You're going to feel that I have a one in ten chance of being shot here. And it's gonna put you on edge. And then that brings in all the other semi bad apples, you know, the ones that aren't uh, rotten to the core but just have a few worms in them or something, uh, or, or are going sour maybe, or just been on the shelf for too long. 
<laughs> those ones are going to be, can be activated by the tense uh, kind of uh, approach or t- the tense or nervousness of the citizen who is justifiably nervous because of the real bad apples. So it just it kind of has a it has a potential to spiral downwards, just to get worse and worse. You know, when you have a lot of people, ordinary citizens who are concerned or worried, nervous about being stopped by a policeman, and that puts them on their guard and makes them defensive, which then reacts to uh, or causes a reaction in the police officer, and it can and you just end up having a lot more cases of interactions between citizens and police where it goes bad. You wrong. have the same thing in, in schools, too, with the 80 to 90 percent of schools these days having police officers within the building, you know, to monitor students and to basically step in to do crowd control when necessary. It wasn't too long ago that there was a, a video that w- went viral of a, a young girl who was being uh, disrespectful to her teacher and to an officer, and she was body slammed on the floor. And just like you said, Joe, in the comments, people were saying, well, this is a, you know, just a case of not teaching the girl the proper manners. She doesn't respect authority. But, I mean, like you said, this, these, are, uh, these officers in these schools, I mean, what percentage of them are these bad apples or these uh, rotting apples? And right. what are they doing around these children? What influence are they having on these children and in these classrooms? Yeah, and it brings up a question of, <clears throat> sorry, of of of, quest, of authority, you know, of questioning authority. I mean, you have to define what kind of authority we're dealing with here. Is it the, the authority that holds life and death over me and that can, with impunity, shoot me if they don't have time for me? Am I to respect that authority? Well, yeah, that's what they hope. They hope that by increasing the number, increasing the the, the police state nature of society and increasing the number of kind of violent trigger happy cops that people will accept and bow down to authority and keep their mouth shut but who wants to accept that kind of authority who wants to respect that kind of authority that authority does not deserve respect because it's a brutal authority but they're still yeah. passing it off as well just respect authority these people that's it's the authority well authority should be a benevolent authority. It gets respect because it treats people well. It doesn't get respect because it uh, treats people badly. But it increases the negative aspect or the negative nature of the authority of the authority by treating people badly, who they, and then people react against it, and then they come down harder on it. And again, it's a kind of thing that just spirals out of control, you know. Yeah, I believe uh, that officer that slammed that girl in South Carolina, he had the nickname of Officer Slam and was suspected of using steroids. And he had like a almost a 200-pound advantage in, in size over that, that teenage girl. So yeah. it's just, these guys are clearly, you know, they, they have reputations for behaving like this. And some would, you know, pose it that they are, that that's what's sought and that's how they're trained. I mean, in, when you get to their training, if you talk to ex-cops and how they're trained, you know, they're shown videos where police hesitate for a second on using deadly force. And because of that, you know, they're shot or they're killed. And they, mm-hmm. they drill us into these, these new recruits' minds that if you're not willing to just immediately pull that trigger, then, you know, you could die or your partner could die. So the, mm-hmm. the training is very questionable. Um, and, Especially you know, in a classroom setting. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah, you can pull that trigger in the classroom. Unarmed teenagers, it's just a joke. Um, and then it comes back to uh, 
it just comes back to the fact that you know like they're they're they are you know i mean you could argue that the police in this day and age are are terrorists they inspire fear in the average citizen especially in people that are well aware of these stories and how frequent these events pop up uh, it's just it's just unbelievable um how how you know how much fear the police you know who are ostensibly there to protect and serve the populace you know to to prevent violent acts and to de-escalate situations that they do the exact opposite um, and it just it gets back to the whole you know the situation in the globe where you know we see the US is supposed to be this bastion of freedom and democracy and in fact it's quite the opposite mhm you're just making things worse yeah i mean that's what they hope i think in the US and elsewhere and on a global scale they're hoping they're that that the more they turn the screws on people the more brutality they inflict on people that the more control the more people will uh, accept the oppression and stay down and get down lie down and stay down basically and these people don't realize that um just on the human level that that doesn't hasn't worked in the past uh ask any british imperialist uh or even any american imperialist or any other imperialist uh and look at the history of imperialism and people only take so much abuse before yep. they just lose the plot you know they do react you can't keep your jackboot on their necks forever and these people think that they can and they're going to find out that they can't and it's all going to yep. go pear shaped it's all those bad apples are going to make things go pear shaped Go ahead, Brent. Uh, I was just going to say there was another story um, about a, a cop in Jacksonville, Florida, who was caught in two separate videos beating up on a handcuffed woman twice. Now, granted, this woman was drunk and belligerent. She was arrested. Um, but I guess the, the officer felt that he was entitled to some sort of vengeance and, you know, beat this woman bloody. Um, and, you know, they, they have several. There's two different, two separate videos of her. Um, the first one, he slams her face in a concrete repeatedly. Second one was when they were in the, the actual, um, the actual police station. Um, you know, she may have, you know, attempted to trip him or whatever, basically, you know, graze the side of his leg with her foot. And he goes over and just pounds on her, you know, head and face, you know, and just beats at her with his fists. And, you know, it's like these guys are on a hair trigger. And if they, they feel the slightest bit threatened or the slightest bit disrespected, they go off and they go off on people who you know, may not be completely innocent of, you know, any wrongdoing. But, you know, ostensibly we're entitled not to be treated, you know, with cruel, unusual punishment. You know, if you're if you're drunk and belligerent, yeah, OK, you get arrested. You know, you may have to get a fine. You go down and they take you into the police station and stuff. But that doesn't entitle an officer to beat you bloody. Um, it's just it's just unreal um there's another video um this was from earlier in the week in atlanta georgia um guy completely innocent of any wrongdoing was shopping um at a where was he i think it was a walmart um and uh an under uh, a cop an off-duty cop who was doubling as a um a security guard there suspected this man of stealing a tomato that he had actually paid for. And the guy's name was uh, Tyrone Carnegie. Um, and he was jumped by this off-duty officer um, 
pummeled, his leg was broken, he had a artery severed in his leg, spent three days in jail before the charges were finally dropped, um, and the interaction was all caught on security cameras. Um, and it's just like, you know, he, all he had to do was walk up to the guy and ask him for his receipt, but he didn't even do that. He didn't, he just went off. And it's it's like more and more we see these these officers, as soon as they have any inkling that you're, you're, you're guilty, that you the, the switch goes off in their mind and they, they lose it. They become almost animalistic and attack, you know, attack these people um, without a second thought. And then, and then what we see is the system comes down and protects them. You know, they're, they're giving, like I said, very lenient treatment, you know, Oh, they were doing their job. Um, and very rarely do we see any like actual repercussions against these people. And even when, you know, they, they do come back, there was a, an incident where two brothers in Missouri, they were um, assaulted by off-duty police officers um, in a restaurant. And um, the cops uh, basically, you know, they, they got in there and they, they asked these two men for their ID and it started harassing them. And one of the men uh, was a uh, criminal justice major uh, and he was with his brother. And, you know, they're aware of their rights and Having done nothing wrong, they refused to produce ID, and that's when the switch went off and the police started to get physical. Um, they attacked them and then, you know, charged them with assaulting an officer and all this stuff. Comes out later, you know, the there was uh, – comes out later that they were, you know, innocent of any wrongdoing. Um, and then the two men um, sued, the, sued the city and, and won. And they got a six-figure settlement, you know, and these settlements, they always come out of the, the pockets of the taxpayer. They don't come out of police pension funds. They don't come from the individual officers. You know, it's, it's like, you know, even when they're, you know, considered in the wrong or they've done something wrong, it's not the police that have to make up for it. It's the taxpayer. And that just makes absolutely no sense. So the people are punished. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's that, you know, that'd be money for infrastructure, you know, money for, you know, social welfare programs that just vanishes. And these are large settlements, anywhere between six figures and, you know, several million dollars. Um, Crazy. Well, you know, I was yeah. uh, just looking at an article about the TSA and uh, how whistleblowers within um, the TSA in the U.S. get punished routinely for uh, coming out and uh, reporting wrongdoing on the part of either other employees or um, or the higher uh, kind of uh, stationed um, supervisors of the TSA. And so it just seems in, in hearing these stories again uh, that there is this institutionalized uh, aggression. It's like if you're not out there beating up on people, if you're not out there abusing them, you're not doing your job. And, uh, and it, it not only allows for the, the bad apples to uh, give themselves permission to go nuts on people, but it, it also kind of encourages uh, the worst in those police officers who might not otherwise have an inclination to, uh, to mm. do the things that, are, that mm -hmm. we're seeing. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Brent, thanks for coming on today for the another great weekly police state roundup. Not to be confused with Monsanto's roundup, but maybe they should maybe they should <laughs> no. get into something like that. Produce a cop roundup. Yeah. 
I don't, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Brent. Round up the cuffs. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Take care. Brent. Bye, Brent. So, um, next week, Elon, do you want to tell what we're talking about next week? Well, I'd, I'd prefer to maintain a little suspense, but we have a very interesting guest next week. Uh, David Jacobs, author of Secret Life, uh, The Threat, and a new book, um, which we'll be discussing. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with his name, he has um, been researching UFOs and alien abduction for several decades. Uh, he's quite established, and we think it's going to be a really a fantastic interview. So tune in. Wow. All right. Well, Look thanks. forward to that one. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Tim Anderson for coming on the show today. Thanks to Brent and Joan and Neil. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. No problem. Thanks to everyone. Pleasure. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week, maybe. You yeah, we'll know. see. We'll see. Um, we'll see how long the interview goes. Um, but, yeah, you guys, if you guys want to participate, yeah, that'd you, be great. You, well, you guys take care of the weird stuff, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we're in the weird department. The, we'll, we'll see. We'll yeah. make an announcement later this week. Yeah, if we uh, if we think of anything weird to say, we'll we'll come on and say it afterwards. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks everyone. Alrighty. Take care. Bye everyone. And yeah. Have a good evening. Bye bye. Have a great week. Tally ho.